Neo-Marxism seems to be a theory that is designed to cause those who accept it to develop or at least functionally mimic a paranoid personality disorder. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. I'm Harrison Cayley, joined as usual by Elan Martin, Adam Daniels, and Luke Koch. Today is part two of our discussion of James Lindsay's book, Race Marxism. Last week, we talked about critical race theory itself, the first chapters of the book, a bit of the, the history and origins of it, um, some, what it is, what the kind of main tenets of its belief structure are. And we got a bit into what Lindsay calls the, the proximate ideological origins um, in critical theory, like Marcuse, Adorno, Horkheimer, those kind of guys. We didn't get into too much detail on them. Um, we'll maybe talk a little bit more about them today, but also the, the deep ideological roots, which he gets into in chapter five, I believe, four or five, where he goes back to Rousseau, Hegel and Marx. So we'll talk a bit more about probably just Marx and Hegel and then how it all kind of fits together. And then just wherever else we go, because I've got some other things, related things to, to get to as well. Maybe before diving into those deep roots, um, just to go back to Marcuse and kind of wrap that up a bit, I wanted to read some, well, just, I'll start it with something funny. Um, this is from Marcuse's an essay on liberation. And this is, well, I'll just read the paragraph and then I'll say who it reminds me of. We'll, we'll see if this reminds you of anyone. Okay, so Marcuse writes, thus, uh, should, I, should I preface this with something? Um, what does Lindsay say? Um, okay, he's talking about in neo-Marxism, rather than a great proletarian revolution, Marcuse envisioned a great refusal that would usher in a liberation movement towards socialism. Um, and then he said that this, okay, this great refusal, um, a reference to Dante's Inferno, would take antinomian and clownish forms, he said, and therefore have something of a uh, subversive anti-aesthetic and anti-morality to them. So he writes, Marcuse, thus in some sectors of the opposition, the radical protest tends to become antinomian, anarchistic, and even non-political. Here is another reason why the rebellion often takes on the weird and clownish forms which get on the nerves of the establishment. In the face of the gruesomely serious totality of institutionalized politics, satire, irony, and laughing provocation become a necessary dimension of the new politics. The contempt for the, for the deadly esprit de sérieux, don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, which permeates the talkings and doings of the professional and semi-professional politicians, appears as contempt for the values which they profess while destroying them. The rebels revive the desperate laughter and the cynical defiance of the fool as means for demasking the needs of the serious ones who govern the whole. So, of course, uh, Marcuse is a hardcore leftist. And the only thing I could think of when reading that paragraph was Trump. <laughs> like it's the perfect, I mean, Trump, uh, like clownish, cynical defiance of the fool 
that uh, doesn't take politics seriously and and just insults all of the serious politicians. That, well, Marcuse actually predicted Trump um, kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum than than Marcuse would have liked. But just uh, I just wanted to start out with a little bit of a laugh because I thought that was hilarious. Um, but one of the the one thing that sticks out about Marcuse, unless anyone else has anything else to add about him, because just reading him for the most part just makes me go goggly-eyed because he's so obtuse. But um, the w- one interesting thing that uh, I think Adam mentioned it last week, <clears throat> this one idea he had about changing changing people at the le- level of their biology, um, because, you know, the revolution isn't working, so how do we get how do, how do we get the revolution to come about? Well, we have to change people on an instinctual level. He says, um, in as much as these needs and satisfactions of people, so like human nature, reproduce a life in servitude, he's saying that uh, just the way people are tends, you know, they, they tend to end up enjoying their consumerist um, servitude. Like, uh, you know, Luke gave that great example of his, his parents um, proselytizing to to working class people that were happy, you know, with what they had. Um, so in as much as, as these things reproduce life of, of servitude, liberation presupposes changes in this biological dimension. That is to say, different instinctual needs, different reactions of the body as well as the mind. And he expands on this. So that was also an essay on liberation. And uh, okay, so he, he expands on that earlier in the same essay, <clears throat> where he he kind of describes, he, this is what's so annoying about Marcuse. He tries to describe what he's talking about and essentially says, I'm not talking about what I'm talking about. So it makes everything kind of not make any sense. So he says, I use the terms biological and biology, not in the sense of the scientific dis- discipline. So he's using the words in a sense in which they don't actually exist. Okay, so where is he going with this? But in order to designate the process and the dimension in which inclinations, behavior patterns, and aspirations become vital needs, which, if not, satis- if not satisfied, would cause dysfunction of the organism. So he's kind of saying these things, I'm not, I'm not saying these things are biological, but I'm calling them biological. But you can, I mean, I think maybe some actual biologists would tend to agree that there are biological roots to inclinations, behavior patterns, and aspirations, um, but not entirely. And I think that's maybe what he's trying to get at, is that these things aren't entirely biological. It's not a total bottom-up process. And that's what he's banking on, is the fact that these can be changed. So he says, conversely, socially induced needs and aspirations may result in a more pleasurable organic behavior. If biological needs are defined as those which must be satisfied and for which no adequate substitute can be provided, certain cultural needs can sink down into the biology of man. Um, We could then speak, for example, of the biological need for freedom or of the aesthetic needs of having uh, as having taken root in the organic structure of man in his nature or rather second nature. So, um, you know what he's doing, Harrison? He's just talking nonsense. He's talking nonsense. (laughs) He's adding a level of profundity to cultural programming. And it sounds to me like, you know, particularly with the left who have their own set of moral taste buds. Uh, to just radicalize and exacerbate whatever 
uh, leanings individuals have in a certain sphere of political or social thinking and just making it even more uh, urgent, hystericized. Um, but you know, you, you, like I'm listening to you reading Marcuse right now, and it's like, it's just like Lindsay says, you know, uh, the, these academics spout this stuff and it's, it's designed by its very nature to sound highfalutin and, and well thought out and, uh, and elevated. And in fact, it's, or it's, as John, uh, Leguizamo know, called it, thinky talk, <laughs> highfalutin thinky talk. Yeah. And once you realize that, uh, and you get back, you know, you, you pare it down, you pare it down. He's talking about, he's talking about programming. He's talking about brainwashing yeah. and hystericizing and pathologizing uh, a certain segment of the population that is most uh, vulnerable mm -hmm. to, to the way he would like to see things go. But I think he's actually, or Luke, did you have a, a response there before I go into that? No, I, I was just uh, reminded of, you know, something called behavioral design, which is um, something that, you know, is, is kind of a thing in, in design. And you actually want to um, shape people's behavior, you know, by, by designing things a certain way. And nowadays it's, uh, it's often used, you know, like to to fight climate change or some, some stuff like that, you know, get people to, to be like uh, CO2 neutral or whatever. So I, I was just reminded of that, you know, um, uh, when Marcuse says you, you got to change the, the needs that, you know, something that people, you know, their drives basically. So mm -hmm. you kind of mani manipulate them that they actually want to, you know, um, I don't know, like save fuel or whatever. So, so I think you're spot on, Ilan. This is just what he's talking about is basically repro reprogramming people. Mm -hmm. The way I see it is, well, it's it's a. I think he. I don't know enough about Marcuse if he actually had a disdain for science or just um, just actual like clear thinking because in here he's got so many kind of presuppositions that that his his argument, if you could call it that, is, you know, dependent on that he doesn't get into. So he, he's talking about about how these needs can sink down, but he doesn't give an actual example of of how that actually takes place. He just kind of presupposes that it, it does take place and then builds this this argument on top of it. But what what he seems to just be saying is that okay, so you can you can make people want a thing. I mean that's that's part of his criticism of consumerism, I think, is that is that we we're brainwashed to want things that we don't actually need and then to be happy with those things and and confirmed in our servitude. And that so he's he's saying, well that needs to become a deep a deep grained thing a deep grained thing, like like an instinctive need. So he says, well I'm not saying that we need to change people's biology, but but really I think that's what he actually wants. I, th I think that's the that what what's he that's what he actually needs because what he's talking about and what he wants to happen it wouldn't be enough to just change people on the level of like consumer goods or or just these behavioral nudges that um that like uh, cognitive or behavioral psychologists are expert at manipulating that's not um that wouldn't be enough this gets and so this gets into lobachevsky and ponerology where one of the one of his one of Lobachevsky's most interesting points, I thought, was on the nature of of pathocratic propaganda. Is that they actually want they actually f 
They want and think it's possible to change human nature itself. And they're always disappointed with the results because it's impossible, because you're talking about a very stable um, like biological, psychological structure that can't be changed at the at the base level. And that's what you would actually need in order to to have the 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 vision to to implement the vision that that guys like Marcuse and you know all the other totalitarians want. What they what they would need would be to go in at at that biological level, at the most basic instinctual level, to change the actual you know instinctive substructure of humanity. And it won't work. So I thought that was just really interesting that Marcuse actually explicitly goes there. He's not just talking about the new socialist man. He's actually saying, oh, you know, I'm not saying this, but I'm saying we need to change the actual biological instinctive nature of humanity in order to get the revolution re revolution to come through. So I thought that was interesting. But uh, one, one other thing on that topic, uh, Lindsay comments, <clears throat> he says, my reading of this riddle biology that isn't really biological, is that Marcuse is calling for intentionally inducing psychopathologies as a form of liberatory consciousness. This is also something we mentioned last week. In the sense that being able to cope with day-to-day -day, day -day life as it is, is by definition a psychopathology. So he goes on to say that uh, um, in this regard, neo-Marxism seems to be a theory that is designed to cause those who accept it to develop or at least functionally mimic a paranoid personality disorder. And because that's essentially what Marcuse has said in that first paragraph is that, um, how did he put it? Um, vital needs, which if not satisfied, satisfied would cause dysfunction of the organism. So he wants to install new needs in people so that the, when those needs aren't met, they become dysfunctional. They become maladjusted to themselves and to society. So that, that that's almost as explicit an endorsement of inducing psychopathology as you can get is that we want to make people dysfunctional. We want to, we want to install a new need in them so that society doesn't give them what they need and they, and they form a break with society and want to tear it down. So he's basically saying we want to create antisocial people <laughs> that, uh, that will then allow us to, to tear down the system, which is quite interesting. Um, and then he also, he, well, he, he quotes some like Horkheimer, um, Horkheimer's vision, or this is, okay. well, first it's Marcuse, his vision of the creation of a reality in accordance with the new sensitivity and the new consciousness. And then Horkheimer, criti critical th theory maintains, it need not be so, men can change reality and the necessary conditions for such change already exist. So there's this deep-seated need in, in like all these brands of leftism to to fundamentally alter reality because, and from the psychopathological perspective, that may be because the individuals that think like this are fundamentally, you know, in some way at odds with, with, um, with the existing social structure that a lot of people are just, you know, relatively fine with. They may be, they may like see problems with it, but it's not such a deep seated problem that, you know, they want to destroy everything. There's, there's an, there's an extremism, like this, this radicalism that goes along with it, that that's just, uh, it seems um, kind of out of proportion to, well, in, in many regards. Um, and well, that's at least how Lobachevsky would approach that. Well, just as a, a like a, an example of something going like too far in terms of like a normal person looking at reality, right? Uh, seeing some uh, disparity, let's say, between uh, 
you know, the, the upper classes and the lower classes, like, you know, there's so much, uh, wealth within say the United States as an example. And yet there's still all of these people who are homeless. Um, okay. So that's for the average person. Um, you know, that's, that's not good, but that's kind of as far as it goes. It's, it's not, well, then we have to tear down everything. We have to burn it all to the ground. Yeah. It's, it's not that, that deep. It's not that deep. Yeah. I mean, I think it, there's a hatred. Yeah. Yeah. It can be, it can go a bit further than just, oh, well, that's not good in the sense of, well, let's try to do something about this and let's, you know, let's try to maybe homeless shelters, maybe there are other like interventions we can make, things that we can do to fix this problem, as opposed to, we just need to tear it all down. We need to make everyone homeless first and then rebuild from the ground up. We just need to start at zero. And so, yeah, quite, there's quite a, a gulf between those two approaches, um, between the evolutionary approach and the revolutionary approach. But of course there are other, yeah. there are people as well who just don't want to do anything. They just don't care. Then there was the. Um, I think that there. Oh well, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> All right, I'll jump in then. Um, so one thing that uh, I'm going to backtrack a bit about, you know, just Marcuse in particular, his his stories, his narratives, the way that he's describing what he's seeing, or at least like ostensibly what he says he's doing is trying to explain what's going on comes across as being one of those counter like counter narratives one of the counter storytelling um methods by which the critical race theorists uh use to manipulate people into getting the things that they want it has a very similar shallow paranoid totally convoluted and um and just wackadoodle uh, reading of how things work and how things uh, should change in order to make whatever he's talking about better, which he doesn't even really say. So it it has that that very same um, reality is irrelevant. It's about my my narrative and how I feel, and because I feel this way, and I can reason along this path that this is why it is this way. Well, then you know, I, I'm totally justified in saying all of the other things that I, that I'm saying that need to be done to rectify it. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, uh, like you were saying, it's a, a total being at total odds with reality. And if you're at total odds with reality, then you can't use reality as a means by which that, uh, to measure any kind of changes or to structure any kind of changes It it can't, uh, map to reality. So it, the only thing you can do is come up with a, a counter narrative you know, implausible or as irrelevant as it might seem. Um, that's kind of all you have. And so it makes sense that that's where he goes. Well, the, the interesting part about that is how upfront these folks are about the idea that there is no truth or, or that there is no uh, objective reality, or in any case, we shouldn't even attempt to ascertain what it is because in their thinking, uh, my lived truth as a minority, as a gender, as a uh, person of a specific uh, sexual orientation is the, is the truth. And everything needs to be defined and seen within that, um, that particular uh, identity as the truth. That, that's what I think's 
speaks so much to this idea of superficiality of the whole thing. Um, so one point he makes is, well, he gets a little bit into intersectionality. This is, um, this is Lindsay. Uh, and he points to a figure in the progression of thinking along these lines named Kimberly Crenshaw, who's like a UCLA professor who's been talking about this forever. And what she'll say is, um, she'll present herself as a black person, as opposed to a person who happens to be black. And she's upfront with the idea that uh, it's more powerful to present as the identity, uh, as opposed to a uh, part of a, a universal uh, part of humanity a person who happens to be this, that, or the other thing. And what that, that forces another person to do is to see them uh, through their victimhood, uh, that, that, they are, that, that the individual is trying to um, uh, impose or convey upon the other in order to accrue power. Uh, so Lindsay makes the point in, in one of his talks, actually, that... Um, it's what's so limiting about it is that it it takes away from any of the the the, the common sense or reasonableness or universality or plurality or level of uh, teamwork as opposed to uh, working within a, a a kind of hive mind uh, that you know these people would would seek to impose on society. Um, and I think that's one, one way that they convince themselves and convince others who are vulnerable to enforce their, their particular, um, victimhood and, and minority status on others. Yeah. I mean, about the unhingedness from reality that you, you, you all spoke about, uh, I think it's it's a very good point. And if you look at this thing that you mentioned, Ilan, with a black person as opposed to a person who happens to be black, um, I mean, there is um, there's just a total um, unhingedness uh, or disconnect from reality. I mean, these people, they basically argue uh, that, um, you know, like race is a social construct, right? So it doesn't really exist. But, you know, uh, since they um, do want to do something, right? They, they, they have an agenda, so they um, reinterpret this that, yeah, it is like a social construct that is like generated by the white power, but it's actually good, you know, if we think in, in this kind of, in these terms, you know, because it's a lived experience or something mm -hmm. along these lines. And, and it's just so bizarre you know um the, this argument it's really it comes down to just making shit up as you go along basically right i mean and, uh, <laughs> and that's kind of a, a theme that that seems to run through um a lot of these kinds of thinkers i mean uh, the frankfurt school for example they they always um insisted that science and the theory like scientific theory um should you know, should have a, a strong ethical component and should be somehow like 
intertwined with, with an agenda uh, following Marx, of course, who said, um, you know, philosophers have always just uh, tried to understand the world, but we, we, we need to change it. Um, and, but this, uh, this gives like a total carte blanche or free, free pass to, to make things up because you, you can't just make such claims and then not justify them, right? I mean, they, they never, um, you know, developed a theory that as to, you know, what, why, um, you know, what, what ethics should be or like why they should be justified or, or like the relationship between ethics and truth and, you know, and all those questions. It's just um, sort of a, of a slate of hand um, to, to make things up basically um uh, and and that's that's something that you know i think really uh, runs is is kind of a current uh, whether you look at Marcuse or like the earlier frankfurt school guys and and later the you know the, the, all those uh, black theories and theorists and all of that um and that, that's just something that that really springs to mind for me um or, or that stands out that the, this ungroundedness of of the whole enterprise i mean you don't necessarily have to ground everything in in strict facts i think that's you know this it's it that would be like a bit simplistic as well but but you need to ground it in something right and um and through i think they they're kind of playing a game of, ha of coming up with this um, rather convoluted uh, language and, and arguments uh, that hide the fact that they basically give themselves permission to to make things up. And there's also um, a kind of, of hatred, you know, between the lines um, that I find interesting and, and that uh, is along similar lines, Harrison, as, as you said, you know, with the, the idea of um, basically uh, turning everyone to or in, into or pathology or infecting everyone with like a pathology or, or something like that. Um, it's like the the again this this hatred of the you know of the normal people, whether it's like the the blue collar like real working class, you know who who, who want to have a family and and a house and a car or whatever, and and. You can feel that you know the disdain and, and therefore the need to reprogram them or like change the, the their drives. You know, it's there's like a a hatred of the the, the basic drives of humanity of, of human normal human nature basically, um, and uh, yeah. So so I think that's that's really something that uh, that is kind of dangerous um, and. Uh, is, is a strong current uh, through, through many of these theories, at least, you know, after the war. Mm -hmm. What uh, a couple of you have said brings us to these deep ideological roots, because we've been describing the, dia the dialectical faith and the progression of the dialectic, like Kimberly Crenshaw, as, as Lindsay interprets, is that she, she took the, 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 thesis and the antithesis of like neo-marxism and postmodernism because there was this conflict there was this contradiction where the well first of all with the, the problem with neo-marxism was that these were a bunch of white guys that didn't understand the, the centrality of race for instance and the problem with the postmodernists is that they could decontextualize and deconstruct uh no deconstruct race 
um, as just another social con uh, social social contract. I'm getting into Rousseau, into Rousseau a social construct, and and so the the way to synthesize that was to was to say, well, no, um, you, like the the postmodernists might de deconstruct race, but because it is part of this this uh, systemic power from critical theory that is imposed on people, we can't it can't be deconstructed because it's because it's made real. And because it's made real, we can't escape it. So it doesn't it doesn't pay it, and it doesn't make uh, and it and it can't it doesn't pay to deconstruct. It can't be deconstructed because it's because it it becomes part like almost like Marcuse's biology. It, it becomes that instinctual thing. It becomes essentialized in a almost. But even though they're anti-essentialist, they like there there are no essential racial uh, properties. So the the synthesis was then intersectionality, where where intersectionality can be <clears throat> can take into account of all these of all these things where on, on the intersection between you know race and feminism for instance you can you can find all of those um like intersectional anomalies that that were still um left out of like the the civil rights movement or just you know that that there have been there was progress here and progress there but in the middle there was something that where it wasn't there yet and intersectionality manages to capture all of this in this fusion of neo-marxism and postmodernism <clears throat> and so lindsay sees that as this as this uh, dialectical <clears throat> uh, progression and then you know traces this back and says okay so the you know the the postmodernists were post-marxists the the neo the the critical theorists were neo-marxists and each of these each of these philosophical or or movements um what they did was they they adopted the the dialectical method of of taking looking looking at their past looking at their progenitors at these philosophies looking at the contradictions between them and then synthesizing something new out of them by picking and choosing the things that worked and then leaving out the things that didn't work to come up with this new synthesis that in their minds would work and of course each one's just a just another shit show um but that's kind of the the way it has worked and so and so that's what that's what even uh, even Marx was doing well. So the critical theorists did the same thing with Marx and said, "Okay, well, well, here's Marx. Marx had this, this, these great ideas, but he, but here are the contradictions because what he pro what he proposed isn't working. That you know the the class conflict isn't progressing as he thought it would. So so we have to leave that behind and we have to come up with a new synthesis that that centers um, culture or like for the cultural Marx Marxists or um, um, how what." What's a one-word description of what the critical theorists centered on or, or fixed? Well, this, uh, was it maybe, well, this isn't the best description, but like the consumerist aspect of it is this, um, um, there's, a, the, well, it, also cultural. I mean, there's this, the, the, the thing that to look at is, is this, are these cultural elements that we have to focus on? Um, well, false consciousness, you, yeah. maybe? Well, false consciousness is one, there was, uh, I think if you want to kind of like boil it down into like a simple progression of how it all kind of worked. Uh, I think you would do kind of what Lindsay did, which is starting from the first and working backwards. Mm -hmm. So you have the, uh, the, the critical race theorists who were a synthesis of um, the opposition between uh, cultural Marxism and uh, Maoist China, as an example, where Mao uh, knowingly or not, kind of took on a lot of the uh, the cultural Marxist uh, style uh, party points. Where if you deconstruct the culture and you know and reshape it, 
well, then you'll have the Marxist utopia. That's kind of like the basic idea. And so when you see how that didn't work out and you, and you see the, the theory that supposedly was supposed to make it work, that's where they were like, something else must be going on. Oh, that's where race comes in because that's actually the center point. And then working backwards from there, the cultural Marxists were the synthesis of actual Marx and then the Bolshevik revolution where, you know, the, the thesis was Marxist theory. The Bolsheviks were the anti antithesis where a lot of people died and it didn't work out as they thought it would. And so, oh, what must be going on is the culture. We need to change the culture. Um, so that's kind of how I see um, the way things progressed is along these dialectical lines because of how they see things uh, or how they see history as having to move along dialectical lines. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts, Luke? Yeah, about the whole dialectic thing. Um, I mean, that's an interesting topic. Um, I think, you know, it, it, it comes back to this unhingedness, right? I mean, if you define the dialectic, you know, in that way, right, you, you can basically, again, you know, you can make shit up. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, if you create um, like syn endless synthesis, you know, but there's no criterion, you know, like which thing is you know synthesized with what and what is actually like the synthesis right i mean you can just deploy that kind of thing and and just come up with with almost everything right um but the the root is of course you know like the, the this whole hegel thing um and the idea that um basically that there there is in the in the, in the history or in the development of history there, there are these contradictions that emerge, right, and and that need to be resolved, and uh, um, and something comes comes out of them. Um, and uh, Hegel developed his whole philosophy, or like or parts of it, around uh, that idea. And it is it was actually super influential, right? I mean, it's not just the leftists who who invoke Hegel. Um, it, he has been invoked by almost, you know, everybody. It's like, uh, uh, it's kind of interesting. And Collingwood, for example, was very much influenced by Hegel as well. I mean, the, the whole, um, his whole idea uh, of this progression from, you know, art to religion to philosophy and, and science, uh, this comes straight from Hegel. I mean, that's basically um, exactly what he said. Although Collingwood, like, um, has his own twist and it's it's quite different, you know. But the the, the principle it's it's in it's there in Hegel. Um, but you know, I, I just wanted to um, to say something about that because Hegel, you know, is he uh, Lindsay kind of like um, to to tell his story basically um, puts Hegel into this whole line of villains, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and maybe the 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 uber villain because he started the whole thing. Um, but it's. I don't think it's that simple. I mean, I just wanted to read a quote, quote from Hegel that I found pretty funny in that context. Uh, he says, uh, let me say, property is not merely a means of satisfying needs, but an end in itself, since it is a form of freedom. So take that, Marxists. <laughs> um, and um, and here, but the, you know, that's, that's pretty funny. But the, the more important thing is that, you know, Hegel, um, uh, was was kind of like a, it, it is like a whole almost esoteric uh, spiritual mystical kind of teaching, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's um, 
it, it, it reminded me in some, or it reminds me in some ways even of, of Whitehead, and, and there are other people who saw like similarities in, in both Whitehead's philosophy and, and Hegel's actually. Um, it's like this, this weird mixture between like a very systematic approach, but then it's like almost mystical, you know, in, in nature. And um, just to give, give you a, a taste, you know, because um, people always talk about, you know, like how Marx, you know, basically you know, took, took over from Hegel, but it's just, there's, I mean, there's this property quote, just, you know, but uh, it's just, um, it's just a very different thing, right? I mean, because uh, Marx saw um, the creation, I mean, like consciousness being basically like determined by society and social forces and economic forces. Uh, that's, you know, what he called materialism, uh, which is like a pretty crazy idea. I mean, it's like the social determinism kind of thing or social constructivism. constructivism. Um, and, and for Hegel, that that's, was not true at all. I mean, he, he thought, uh, you know, there's um, everything. He was an idealist. So everything comes from the from the mind and mind is, is prior. Um, and uh, but yeah, but but about his his idea you know that history progresses along certain certain lines and a certain dialectic so to say um it has been criticized and rightfully so because it's it's very teleological and i'm not a, a hegel expert to you know to to judge you know whether you know i don't know how much of it was determined in his mind or you know how whether this all was a done deal but it's still very different, you know, from from any kind of Marx Marxist um, think or utopian thinking. So I just want to read a quote, um, which is actually a deeper translation. So it's probably the worst uh, Hegel translation ever made. Um, but I read it anyway. Um, this glorification of the truth is to be grasped as the absolute final purpose. And this truth is the only power which brings forth, accomplishes this, brings, brings forth, accomplishes this glorification. In the glory of God, also the individual spirit has its glory, but not its special one, but its glory is through the knowledge that itself sense is the substantial consciousness of God, that its doing is for the glory of God, the absolute. In this, the individual spirit has attained its truth and freedom, is dealing with the pure concept, with the absolute, is with no other but with itself, with its essence, not with the accidental, but in absolute freedom. This, then, would be the final purpose of world history. In this idea, the opposition has fallen away, which is in the limited spirit, which considers its, own, its being only in a barrier and rises above it by thought. So the, the idea is basically that Hegel says that at some point in history, um, that in every nation, so he always thought about nations, right? He was no internationalist in that sense. Um, he thought about you know, the spirits of nations and the development of nations. Um, so that at some point, um, what happens is that uh, they're, they're after like a very like fruitful period, there comes kind of like a stasis where it's like a very rigid morality um, and religion, and, and uh, the, the the nation becomes stale. And at this point, um, there's a you know the the world of thought, of science and philosophy, and and deep thinking kind of arises and uh, and questions these traditional 
you know, virtues and, and morals and religion and all of that. So that reminds one definitely a bit of Collingwood and, and what he thought about that. Um, and so then, but he, he says, it's, which is also very interesting, that this kind of movement also um, contains a certain destruction, um, self-destruction. Uh, so, so that's almost a bit prophetic, right? Um, uh, this idea that, you know, once you, you transcend, you, you start thinking about all of that and, and criticizing it, then um, there's a certain danger that the whole thing goes, goes downhill. Um, but he also uh, thinks that if that happens, there's, a, there's basically a, um, an opportunity to, um, to develop along those, um, those you know, spiritual lines, let's say, towards like, um, some sort of um, unification with God and that history kind of progresses in that way, if we're lucky, um, so that um, there's... You know that kind of like everyone is is like has a true understanding of God and and is uh, this is the final glorification of God. So it's kind of like a, a spiritual religious vision. Mm -hmm. uh, so it really, you know, has has very very little, if anything, to do with any Marxist idea of of you know class struggle and the dialectic playing out uh, between classes and then generating the the communist utopia. So. Um, we, we got to really see, I think, that um, as much as you might criticize Hegel, and he, he has been rightfully criticized for, for a lot of things, but it definitely um, is like a whole different story than, than Marxism. And I think this idea of, of dialectic, it has some really interesting uh, components. Um, and uh, maybe as a final point, um, I think the difficulty here is that... Um, there's this kind of divide between, you know, like the science guys, let's say, and and the left, or to put it that way, and uh, and there's there's a certain danger on the part of the science guys, you know, who tend to dismiss like Hegel and all kinds of other thinkers who, who are more of like a, a certain mystical bend and and are maybe a bit obscure about that, but uh, the thing is, we kind of need to grapple uh, with. With the idea that um, that it's it's not like just science or like some you know like enlightenment values whatever that is uh, uh, or rationality it's 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 not enough right I mean there there is and uh, there there is something you know to to be said about how to ground truth and um, and what kind of relative if there is some kind of relativism to it all you know as we saw with Collingwood and his absolute presuppositions that can can neither be proven nor like disproven and I think these are deep questions that we we kind of cannot evade and just point to science you know and say okay science says this and so therefore the lefties are wrong right I mean it's just not that simple and um, and that's also part of the appeal that you know, some thinkers of the, on the left have had. And, and I think Jordan Peterson also said that, you know, the post postmodernists, they have a point in, in, in certain ways. And, um, and these, these deep questions, they don't go away. So I think it's kind of dangerous to, not that Lindsay necessarily does it, you know, he, I think he's actually quite smart about like the whole question of religion and all of that. But in the book, he, yeah, he basically bashes Hegel, you know, as the ur-daddy ur of... <laughs> of this whole, you know, like uh, th theory nonsense. 
and uh, and I think that's uh, uh, that's maybe a bit simplistic or as mm-hmm. yeah I think I'll, I'll leave it at that. But maybe you guys have have some, some thoughts on that. Yeah, um, I I want to I'm going to read one one page of what uh, Lindsay says about Hegel, and. But before that, I was I was reminded of something that Lobachevsky wrote in Panerology about communism, basically, well, about ideologies in general as they relate to totalitarianism. And he said something like, I'm just going to very loosely paraphrase it, um, something like, the fact that any of these ideologies are so um, effective and can can get enough support to, to actually like, uh, fulfill a revolution suggests that there's actually something within that ideology that's, um, that's true, that has some relation to truth. It might be like a, you know, it might be a, um, um, what's the word, like a substitute, or it might be a poor substitute, but there's a, there's something in there. There's a, there's a kernel in there to, to, to use the, the, the alchemical language that Lindsay also doesn't like, there's something in there that actually makes it resonant with a, with a bunch of people that is more than just, um, you know, just brainwashing. So w- with that in mind, I thought there were, there were two interesting, there was this one page on Hegel, and then there's this one page on Marx that I'll read later that, that I read in, in this context, because when it comes to Hegel, it seems that like for me, when I'm when I'm reading the description of Hegel and like the the really like bird's eye view of Hegel, I'm like, okay, well that like that actually makes that that actually makes sense. Oh, there's there's a little thing where I think things went wrong, or here he's emphasizing this too much. But even the whole idea of the of the dialectic, like Lindsay points out, I mean, the dialect dialectical methods have been around since Plato, since the you know since the origins of Western philosophy, and it's such a um, it's such a basic thing such a, a basic concept that, I mean, Hegel may be the first to have really kind of drilled down and, and, and simplified it and made it, made it obvious. But I mean, like you read McGilchrist, McGilchrist several times talks about like the certain dialectic phenomena. And if you, even if you look at paradigm shifts, like, uh, Kuhn's paradigm, uh, paradigm shifts, the, you know, theory of structure of scientific revolutions, um, it's it's essentially a dialectical process where you have a paradigm, you encounter anomalous data, which it is that there's a contradiction between the theory and the and reality, the empirical the empirical data, and then there there arises a new paradigm, which is a synthesis of the of the old paradigm and the new data that encompasses all of the data that the first paradigm paradigm encompassed plus the additional um, new data that wasn't encompassed by the first paradigm. And so you have this new synthesis, this new paradigm. And I think it's just a description of how, you know, how reality works, how, how ideas work, how, you know, everything is a, is a building on and a rejection of what came before. It's just, that's just the way, that's just the way things work. And Hegel just described it with some, um, some peculiarities, you know, like just the, some of the things that he got wrong or emphasized weirdly. So with that said, here's, here's the page from Race Marxism. <clears throat> so Lindsay writes, Hegel's peculiar dialectical metaphysics has to bear on this discussion at this point uh, to make any sense um, of this so-called science. So he's talking about, you know, um, Hegel's idea of science and how it wasn't, you know, it's not, um, it's not what we t- tend to think of as science today. Of course, this was before, you know, before science as we know it today. So in broad sweeping strokes, Hegel believed that the idea or the absolute 
is the true nature of the deity. Being generally hermetic, alchemical, in his orientation in the dialectical way, however, Hegel would have believed that the deity um, cannot know itself without comparing itself against an abject other, being compared against nothing, synthesized in becoming. That's very Whiteheadian right there. Or the idea, sublime, compared against nature, mundane, synthesized in geist, or spirit, phenomenal. To keep it brief, Hegel saw this trinity not as an atemporal, eternal godhead, like in the Christian metaphysics he speculated upon, but as a process corkscrewing through time, history. So again, a process corkscrewing through time, that's also very Whiteheadian, or McGilchristian. The idea begets nature. The nature, through the state, begets the spirit. At the largest scale, the world spirit the Weltgeist. The Weltgeist moves people to act, change their circumstances, and think in new ways, thus generating a new idea. With each turn of the corkscrew, more contradictions work themselves out, and all three parts, idea, state, and Geist, are aufgehoben, abolished as they were, and (laughs) lifted up to a higher level. The process repeats until the last contradiction of all, the idea that is perfected, but doesn't yet know that it is perfected, after which the process, which is history, ends. In other words, Hegel's metaphysics would see the divine bringing the created world, nature, into being so that it can come to know itself as deity. How? Even though this is a hermetic construct, here we should note Marx's invocation of the Gnostic concept of the demiurgos as intermediary creator being identified with thinking. Uh, This relates, sorry if that's obscure, but it relates to a a previous paragraph. Thus for Hegel, the absolute attaining self-knowledge would be produced by the life process thought of the created human beings, which he envisioned taking its highest form in the dialectic. Thus Hegel's is a dialectical faith by which God creates an abject other, the world, according to, uh, including man, so that he can understand himself um, can underst- uh, and, and then only realizes himself to be God after human beings think through and synthesize, or more accurately, concretize, all the contradictions that exist in their understanding of the world. Progressing the dialectic becomes, therefore becomes the imperative of the Hege- Hegelian faith. Taking steps to accelerate this process is now referred to as being on the right side of history, while hindering it by seeking to maintain the status quo, for example, is being on the wrong, the wrong side of history. So we see how theory, capital T, of all stripes generates religious duties of conscience in activism for their adherence. So here, um, Lindsay at various times, though, well, on the next page, will point to um, kind of a few of the a few of the things in there that he that he points out as or that he identifies as being um, like kind of the, the errors in there. Well, probably he probably sees them all as errors, but the big ones being like the focus on the state. So the the state is the is the means by which that idea is generated. And I think that's probably that's probably you know I think Hegel got that wrong. It's not you know the state isn't the perfect representation of how the idea takes form in in a society. I mean, or in in the world. Um, I think that's more of just a product no. of the time he lived in, and then yeah, also, the, yeah. yeah, and then also this idea that that he that he 
hints at in these last few sentences that I'm not sure, I don't know for sure if Hegel actually saw it this way or not, but there's this whole idea, and maybe he did, this whole idea of the his, of history being this like, um, this freight train and and it just rolls over people and it's just too bad for you. That's just, that's just history. That's just the dialectic. Um, you know, that's just the con the, the inevitable contradictions that, uh, that will result in how in, in like destruction and, and mayhem or, or people dying or, you know, torture or whatever. Um, that's just how history progresses. So once we get to the end of history, that it'll all be worth it because well, you were just, um, you were just the, the eggs that we had to break to make the, uh, the omelet of the, you know, the absolute finally realized, um, and he calls that the, the kind of dialect, dialectical theodicy, the, 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 the uh, justification for evil in the world. Um, Luke, did you have something to say about yeah, that? Yeah. yeah, I just wanted to say, I mean, there was in the passage you read, I think actually it sounds like a pretty good, uh, uh, you know, um, I say like summary of, of some of Hegel's thought, you know, that then say uh, uh, brought forth. But he, there was one, um, I think, slide of hand, you know, towards the end where he basically jumps from Hegel directly to like the Marxist and neo-Marxist yeah. ideas, right? Where it's like, uh, you're, you're too bad if you're on the, on the wrong side of history and, uh, and we need to accelerate, you know, the dialectic. I mean, I, I'm, again, I'm, I'm by no means a Hegel expert, but I don't think that's really was the idea, you know, and, and it's a bit like, um, as you said, like the justification for evil thing. I mean, you can see it that way, but I think it's a bit cynical actually to to let, look at it that way because um, I mean, it's it's a bit like you know Collingwood with his idea that there there's certain faces in in history and that develop. I mean, um, you, you probably um, don't need to to say uh, oh, so that's all deterministic and. Uh, uh, and just you know, too bad you can't can't do anything, and we should accept all the evil that brings. With, I mean, it's that we're we're on the more religious or spiritual plane almost. Where um, they, I mean, that's something that in Christian thought as well, people have grappled with, right? The the idea that uh, is it all worth it? You know, that all the suffering um, at the end of the day. You know, is there some some system to the madness you know is, is there some purpose um that you know in the final stages of how this whole unfolds um uh, is there something there you know that makes it worth it uh, that we have may have learned uh, something and or that we need to go through this development you know to glorify god as as hegel had it um i mean the, 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 these are like deep religious questions and uh uh, yeah, and, and and definitely, I mean, the Marxist and all that. I mean, that, that's that's really cynical, um, and so he's right in 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 that way. But I wouldn't say, you know, that it's. I wouldn't put it like he put it at the end of the the paragraph you read it. Maybe um, to say, yeah. oh, it's just a just justification. It's this mechanical view of history, and it's just a just justification of you know all the suffering. Um, although uh, again, Hegel has been criticized and and rightfully so for for a bit too strong a teleology and, and too strong a, you know, like an idea that history just, you know, unfolds according to plan, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's a valid criticism, I guess. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not uh, well steeped in Hegel uh, either, but uh, what this does remind me of a little bit, and it's been a long time since I've read any Nietzsche, but it's just like how any philosopher that is well known and has some 
some following uh, has been appropriated by a uh, an ideology or a government to help support its own um, its own movement. So uh, the uh, the Nazi Party uh, touted Nietzsche and interpreted things in a certain way, and yet there are others who would find great you know wisdom and insight into Nietzsche's works that had nothing whatsoever to do with. Uh, Nazism or interpreting the Ubermensch as some kind of, uh, you know, uh, Aryan uh, knight, you know, Nazi style. Uh, so perhaps Lindsay is, um, you know, he's 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 reacting to the way that uh, not so much to Hegel as to the way that Hegel may be um, misappropriated or interpreted or twisted to serve the the ideology uh, that he's that he's pointing out. Well, so before, uh, well, after Hegel uh, came Marx, of course. So along the lines of how we were approaching Hegel, now let's, now let's look at Marx. Um, again, I'll read just one little excerpt from what Lindsay says about, uh, about Marx. He says, in fact, Marxism is the second following Hegel's philosophy from which it is derived in a long line of modern era Gnostic cult ideologies that seek to characterize God as tyrannical and the existing order of the world as a prison, hello Foucault, into which we are flung, hello Heidegger, that we can escape if we discover, discover the true nature of reality, which is a kind of consciousness that must be raised. That is, Marxism is rebellious Gnosticism reconfigured for industrial modernity. This is the basis of Marx's desire to center man in himself, which he posited is a necessary precondition to man's true independence. This is the same false promise made by the serpent in Genesis, by the way. Being scientistic and capitalizing upon the advent of scientific authority through the 19th century, Marxism focuses on providing a scientific study of history, a modern era demiurge, which it treats as a kind of deity for a new industrial age. In recognizing that economic exploitation was the most fruitful vein of agitation to achieve a Gnostic revolution, <clears throat> Marxism utilizes economic and material conditions as the fodder for generating the necessary conflict to enact a mass rebellion against God and reality. Critical race theory is hardly different, except that it makes race the central construct for understanding inequality instead of class, and seeks to awaken an an agitated racial consciousness instead of an alienated class consciousness. So, well, I've got, uh, I'm going to have a, a bunch to say about Gnosticism, but coming back to this idea about, you know, why, what, what communism, like what Marxism provided for, you know, the people or provides f still for the people that support it, you know, what is, what is it there that, that latches on? I don't think it's entirely, um, some pathological thing. It's not, you know, of course there, the, the, the pathology has a, a lot to do with it, but there's something more to it. And I think it's that, that teleological sense of, of it's this utopian vision. And um, I'd, I'd go further than Lindsay to say it's not just you. It's not, it's not just Marxist, or it's not just a Gnostic. It's it's actually just fundamentally um, religious, and even even specifically Christian in in its um, 
in its vision, the idea that there, there is a coming kingdom, you know, a coming, that there's something else, you know, in the future, there's some vague possibility like the, like the critical theorists were, were searching at. Of course, they were looking at it strictly in terms of, of, um, like this materialist Marxist conception of, of, uh, of, of a world without exploitations, you know, in terms of, of production and all, and just these kind of economic ideas. But on the religious plane, there's this idea that there is another world, right? That there is, uh, there is, there's a, a fundamental transformation or shift in the individual and in the, in, in, in the world. There is a, the, the world itself is transforming. Um, you can find this in Paul's letters that, um, that there's something there's some goal. There's some tele- teleology, not in the sense of a strict, um, a strict, uh, like paint by the numbers. This is the way pr- history is progressing. But there's a there's a, there's an ideal. There's a goal that can be worked towards that 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 ex- exists in some sense and can be approached and achieved. And I think that's what these ideologies, in their like dialectic, tend to evoke in people that that there that there is something more, and it's it's like a substitute for for religion, which had provided that um, almost you know exclusively for thousands of years before then, and so I think that's uh, that's kind of what what's going on there that why people can att- like like. Uh, can find meaning in these ideologies. They're cheap substitutes, essentially, but they're, but they're still, at least they're, well, they're still providing that um, in as cheap a substitute as, you know, as they are, it's still, it's still providing it. And then people kind of um, latch onto that or some people at least. And so with, but I want to comment on these, on Lindsay's use of the word Gnostic, because he's, he's cited and he's, He's cited this guy a lot, Eric Vogelin, um, and the work he cites is Science, Politics, and Gnosticism, two essays. And just to get into that, I want to, I, I think Lindsay's wrong here, um, you know, but I think he's wrong because Vogelin was wrong. So I want to get a bit into this book, New Inquisitions by Arthur Versluis, who we've interviewed. And he's got a chapter on Vogelin, because um, unlike Vogelin, Versluis is an expert in Gnosticism. So he kind of knows what he's, what he's talking about. So I want to read a bit here and then we'll get back to, to Marx and Hegel and, and, and Lindsay and how, how they may or may not be Gnostic in nature. So Versluis writes, first, what is Gnosis anyway? Vogelin writes that it is knowledge, implying that it is just another form of ordinary knowledge or information. But in fact, the word gnosis, in its generally accepted scholarly sense, refers to knowledge of God, or to put it another way, transcendence of the subject-object division. The word knowledge entails a subject knowing an object, but gnosis may perhaps better be termed the realization of inner union between the individual consciousness and divine revelation. The word revelation implies a revealer. And in the various Gnostic writings, one finds numerous instances of the divine revealer. In general, Christ. Gnosticism generally cannot be described as self-salvation, though the Gnostic writing, the, uh, throughout the Gnostic writings, one finds the theme of divine revelation and the need for both human effort toward realizing Gnosis, as well as the need for corresponding divine grace or angelic help. But most interesting of all is Vogelin's claim that the Gnostic seeks destruction of the old world, and even more startlingly, world destruction, 
and that such Gnostic attempts are a futile effort to disturb the order of being and the order of society. This is interesting perhaps most of all because there is no evidence for the idea that Gnostics, as represented in the actual writings we possess, were, were engaged in any such effort at world destruction at all. It is arguable that Gnosticism, as part of the larger emergence of Christianity in late antiquity, represented a shift from Platonism or Hermeticism, or Hermetism in the Gnostics, in the Nag Hammadi library writings, uh, a shift from Pla- Pla- in that Gnostics in the Nag Hammadi Uh, library writings often insisted on the decisive revelatory power of Christ, separating them to some extent from the other religious traditions of the era. But in fact, Platonism and Hermetism are directly represented in the Nag Hammadi collection, and when one looks closely at at the actual collection, one finds nowhere in it an urge toward world destruction, or even the deliberate disruption of social order. Rather, one finds an insistent an insistence on direct inner spiritual experience as opposed to, say, worldly or social power. One finds numerous instances of visionary revelations and some ethical admonitions, as well as what we may call mystery sayings, like those of Christ in the Gospel of Thomas. So um, I'll read a, a, a few other just short, like sentence long ones, but basically, Vogelin was a, a staunch Catholic and had this idea of Gnosticism that didn't actually exist, and to the extent that it did, probably came from like Tertullian and Irenaeus in the like in the three hundreds and their anti-heresiological writings, which presented an their their vision of what the the Gnostics represented, which actually didn't correspond to reality. And we learned this once we actually found you know their writings. So um, the second point he. He, the second main point he, he makes is this idea of this um, historical eschatology. And so at a couple points in, in this chapter, uh, Lindsay talks about this, this historical eschatology that's in Marxism, and which I alluded to with that vision of the other world, of the future world, that uh, this is an eschatological faith that this, this new world will come into being, this parody of the, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And so Vogelin characterizes... Um, he makes the distinction between essential Christianity on the one hand and the quote, the gnosis of historical eschatology on the other. The only problem that, um, that Versluis points out is that there's no, um, eschatology in the Gnostics. The, the eschatology is actually mainstream Christianity. That's where you find eschatology. Eschatology is, is, is the, the mainstream, uh, Christian view of, of how the, how the world progresses. Mill, uh, millennialism is um, orthodox. So he says, thus it turns out, uh, or this it turns out, is a quite interesting confusion, not least because Gnosticism, using the broadest meaning of the term, the perspectives of, of, the perspectives of those who seek or espouse Gnosis, is precisely opposed to an historicist view of Christianity. Um, so uh, he says, where do we in fact find the origins in, of this Christian tradition of historical eschatology? The answer is certainly not in Gnosticism. It is rather within Catholicism. Um, he goes on, but one could just as well argue that this millennialist tendency is precisely a result of the loss of Gnosis um, as a possibility within Catholicism. He gives a bit about the history of, of the Catholic mystical tradition and how um, like Catholics there, there is a tiny and very small mystical tradition in Catholicism, um, much more so in like Eastern Orthodoxy, 
but in the in the Catholic tradition, it, it, like there were like two two big Catholic mystics, like Dionysus the the Areop, Areopagite, and uh, and one other. Um, and then in in like Protestantism, there's uh, Jacob Buma. We talked about them with with Verslus, um when we talked with him. Um, so Saint Clement of Alexandria, he's the other Catholic. Um, so there's this. It, it's just funny that the, the Gnostics actually represented all of the. You know, they, they weren't about worldly power. It, it, they're they're more like they're more like the Christian like Taoists or um, or you know Zen Zen meditators or something like. These are pr- people focused on more of a of an inner spiritual revelation to become like more spiritual beings. They're not concerned with with social revolution or you know establishing worldly power. So the only sense in which like you could call Marx. Uh, or Marxist Gnostics is as like the, or, or Gnostics is as the anti-Gnostics. You know, they're the ones that, that are like this, 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 this bizarro upside down version of what the, the Gnostics actually represented. And then as Versluis pointed out, points out, if you look at the history of totalitarianism and, um, and it's, and it's progenitor in like the, the, in the inquisitions, it's the Gnostics who were the first ones to the chopping block in, in all these totalitarian systems. So the, the Gnostics aren't the ones that were responsible for totalitarianism in any of the, in any cases, they were the ones that were persecuted by the totalitarians. Um, so let me just see if there is anything else. So yeah, he basically says they represent the, the dissident element within Christianity. And was there anything else? Um, so this opposition is, is what the whole of Vogelin's work disguises, um, by confusing Gnosticism with historicist millennialism. So I'll I'll leave that there and then just come back to this quote. So it's a, a long a, uh, Marxism is the second in a long line of modern era Gnostic cult ideologies that seek to to characterize God as tyrannical and the exact uh, and the existing order of the world as a prison. So this is another one of those ideas. So this is kind of like this matrix idea that the world is a prison. Well, there are, you can, you can ha- easily have like pathological versions of that, like, you know, Marcuse seeing the entire world as this, as this prison, but in the, in the mystical tradition and in the, in the, the kind of contemplative tradition, there's there's a, a relativizing that goes on where in comparison to the real world as it actually or in comparison to the like the the monastic life or the the spiritual life the contemplative life then ordinary life uh does relativize out to being like a prison there's this higher spiritual dimension where like a um well i don't know how far i want to get into that but but you can see the there it's it's not so black and white that that every every um every worldview or ideology or religion or religious um religious worldview that sees the world as a prison is necessarily um like this this resentful um like uh, rebellious teenager like rebellious gnostics um you know just harping on the world and saying how horrible it is like i think that's a, a caricaturization of of what you know, the, the actual Gnostics and mystics, you know, throughout history have actually represented. In fact, they were the ones, they were often the, um, like Jacob Buma, um, often like the pillars of the community in the sense that like a lot of the, 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 the existing pastors and, and priests weren't like, and the same, you could see the same thing going on in Russia in the, in the various like Orthodox heresies that cropped up in Russia where they were, um, 
you know, criticizing the just the the rampant corruption in the or, in the Russian Orthodox Church, and you have all these like um, like hermit groups and and ideologies and or religious ideologies that pro crop crop up because of the the corruption within the church, and then it's the the, the church that crushes the, the 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 rebellious Gnostics who weren't totalitarians, um, you know, they were just uh, and they weren't like yeah. I just, I just think it's a, a, rep, a misrepresentation of what was actually going on. So he, he's, he has a few things like that. And I think it's just unfortunate just because, um, I, you know, and I blame Vogelin. So just like, uh, just, just like, um, Lindsay blames Hegel. Um, I'm going to blame Vogelin for, uh, for at least this, uh, aspect, but anything, uh, any comments on that? Any comments on Marx or any of the things I brought up? Or, yeah, uh, I think the, the 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 gnostic idea is uh, um, I think actually you know the real gnosticism that you just uh, outlined, Harrison, and there's actually um, some of that in in Hegel as well. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, when I just uh, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious, right? But uh, I just want to read one quote. For example, he rejected the mind, the soul, what he calls soul body. Uh, duality, so he sees it as a as a unity, and he puts it actually like it's kind of beautifully. I think uh, he says that um, you know the the soul or the the, the mind world, um, it's it's like a spirit quote spiritual tone poured out over the whole, which directly reveals the body as an externality of a higher nature. So that that's kind of like uh, some connections there. And uh, I think you're right. I mean, um, it doesn't follow that you you that you see certain things in the world that you necessarily want to crush crush the world, right? Or just to to radically change it. Um, and I think that's that's really something that came that came with Marx um, and this idea. I mean, Hegel was was a. I mean, he said like the the only purpose of philosophy is like to to show that the reasonableness of religion, right? So it's basically a theology, and uh, and Marx, of course, like um, uh, put man on the on the pedestal and and killed killed everything religious and and uh, you know put it out of the equation, and uh, and that's how you end up, I think, with this um, with this drive to like radically change everything, right? I mean, if it's if it's just man, you know, and and if it's not embedded in in some higher reality or some teleological um, thinking or some vision, you know, religious vision uh, for 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 the future or for for possible redemption and and all of that, then what you end up with is, I mean, the only choice is you know to to take matters in your own hand, right? I mean, there's just um, it's just logical, you know, that that you you you'll become a revolutionary, uh, and I think that's that's um, really part of the malaise of of the whole Marxist enterprise, um, and uh, it's basically a religion that categorically denies it is a religion and argues, mm -hmm. you know, against religion. But then all you have is um, earthy revolution, and and we know how how that ends and. Uh, and I think you know one thing that you mentioned as well is about the appeal that Marxism has, and uh, 
and the, let's say the, the the positive aspects of it and uh, and I think there's something to be said about that too because um, I mean the how you say it um, it's it's I mean who who isn't alienated to some extent you know um, from, from the modern world I mean it, it, it's just um, who hasn't uh, a vision you know or, or let's say a longing for for a different world you know where things are are not only better but more in balance and more more true to human nature actually and uh, and I think that's that's how many people understand these kinds of ideas you know the the more benign marxists or or those in the tradition of of that kind of thinking you know they as lobachevsky said you know there's a tendency to to you know filter out the you know the bad stuff and um and kind of project your own rich inner inner vision you know on on such theories but that there's there's just something there, right? And and I think it's pretty understandable given the state of the world um, and and all the problems and and the the craziness of modern life and the the, the nihilism and everything uh, to have that kind of longing. Um, and and there have been Marxists, it must be said, or people who call themselves Marxists, uh, who actually like were pretty smart people and 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 contributed a lot of positive things. I mean, I'm just thinking. Of Michael Parenti, for example, who uh, who like wrote this book about Caesar, and uh, and he called him calls himself a Marxist, and his his son, I forget forgot his name, he's he's around, and he's uh, uh, just listened to a podcast uh, with him and Max Blumenthal, and they are like also like left wingers and and possibly Marxists. I don't know if they call themselves Marxists, but wouldn't be surprised. Uh, and and these are like really interesting people and who have lots lots of interesting things to say and so we shouldn't forget that and uh, and I have even seen that sometimes in the critical race theory people right I, I mean this, I, I think you know Lindsay says that um, they are also they're all basically a bunch of liars and they hide their true intentions and I think there's that's definitely true to some extent and especially like those. Academics, at, you know, who come up with these crazy theories. I'm, I'm not sure they're up to, to any good. You know, um, and uh, and also there's this tendency to, you know, just hide the, the the true extent of the of the radicalness of of this these ideas. But then again, there might also be many people who who might consider themselves like critical race theory sympathizers or whatever, and and they might actually. Have some good points and and don't just um, and and truly they're not lying, you know, about them being just concerned about you know racial issues uh, traditionally understood. They actually might believe that, right? And they just kind of either like filter out the more radical elements of the theories or don't even know about them uh, sometimes. Uh, so yeah, and and also that. The, Again, there is this impulse which is not unhealthy uh, to just basically long for for a better world, right? Uh, where where even like these these kinds of race issues um, are not so so prevalent, and uh, yeah, so so I th think that's that's something to consider as well. And and the the one thing is to you know fight the the bad stuff, and uh, I think it's it's really necessary. I mean. I'm not so close to the problem because it's pretty, uh, more of a U.S. thing 
than a European thing, but uh, still I, I totally get, you know, the need to, to stand up uh, to that and the danger in, in, in these like crazy ideologies. But on the other hand, I think there should also be room for dialogue um, if possible um, and uh, basically, you know, connect to, a, you know, or like connect via our, our common humanity and our like common longing to the, for, for a better world to the degree we have it. Um, I mean, some people just don't have it, I guess, but uh, uh, those who have it, um, it's, there, there's common ground right there. And, uh, uh, and maybe even, you know, we can get to a point where we reconnect with, with the, the real religious impulse um, that is behind all of that and the, the real theological ideas um, like some of the gnostic gnosticism things why not right and and some of the more like um, theistic kind of approaches um it doesn't have to be like a crazy religion style <laughs> and uh, it doesn't have to be like opium for the masses style uh, so yeah and so maybe we we once again or that's my hope at least we'll find some common ground there um and on the subject of religion, uh, Luke, there were a couple of things you mentioned that, that reminded me of uh, Lindsay's uh, concerted efforts to work with the Southern Baptist Convention, I think it was, and, and some other religious groups to point out to them very specifically how it is that CRT, uh, critical race theory, is being uh, weaponized and how it's being used to play upon uh, the the thinking and the intentions and the um, the very services that that some of these uh, organizations are out there to provide, which is a traditional um, uh, religious uh, kind of service and and understanding of the world, and um, and so. That speaks very much to uh, Lindsay's understanding, I think, of how you, you not only have these ideas that have been progressing um, as a response to or a reaction to certain prior uh, modes of thinking and, and philosophy, uh, but you also have this kind of Saul Alinsky style, you know, playbook where the 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 academics and the the thinkers and the think tankers and the politicians and perhaps even uh, some other more nefarious groups have been actively thinking about the rhetoric and the the modes by which they can um, implement these policies for public schools for corporations and, and their hiring methods, uh, for other public organizations. And it's so aggressive where, you know, he, he describes how the proponents of CRT in various organizations uh, are very, um, they're very, uh, what's the word, conniving and, and manipulative about passing their the way that they pass their 
their company rules or the legislation through, by attaching it to other things, by making it the last item on the docket that, that can't be discussed thoroughly or thought about, uh, by the, the means by which the, the verbal tools of attack, the rhetoric that is employed to shut down uh, people who oppose uh, dissenting perspectives on all this, it's it's very it's a very concerted effort. These aren't merely ideas that are that are being held to, or free to discuss, or free to to uh, teach, uh, but rather uh, at, in in their kernel, they are their. Uh, and they've, and he points out that that it's even been self-described by some of these academics as a cancer. That this will be a cancerous or viral idea that has to be. Um, I don't think he uses the word inflicted, but but he conveys that this is an infliction of ideas that that these folks who are ideologically possessed uh, manage to to push through in a very aggressive way. And we've seen this in the news, in stories of groups of people who approach uh, people in public and, um, and basically uh, assault them for their white privilege, for instance, or, or, or demand that they kneel before, you know, one or the other of them. Um, but, but, this sort of coercion, that's the word, exists at many different levels and in many different ways. They've, they've really thought this through. And what Lindsay is saying is uh, we, we first have to understand all of this, you know, why it is and these ideas that have progressed to the state that they, that they currently are and that we see. But it's also time now to decide what our red lines are, what our limits um, are within each of us, and to as constructively as possible. And he qualifies this by saying, don't be a reactionary. Don't sound like a, a bigoted, you know, um, overwrought uh, crazy person. Don't, don't, don't use their tools. But certainly networking about this and and challenging uh, the prevailing policy at, at you know in whatever sphere, whether whether it's your child's school or your, the organization that you work for, uh, whatever is possible, or s just supporting someone who is um, coherently making a case and discussing Fourth Amendment rights of of uh, free speech as opposed to compelled speech that that there it's time now for for a constructive response and i thought that that that's something that he uh he does very well that he he says okay we have all of this information we're seeing what's what's going on now we understand basically why uh it is that that it's being implemented um we also know um, from folks like Michael Rechtenwald, who we've had here, and I think Lindsay understands this a great deal himself, is that all of this on some level is also in service to, I mean, it's no coincidence that uh, the World Economic Forum and Great Resetter Elite 
are completely in line with a lot of these ideas. In fact, that, that they are, uh, from, from their level of influence, a major proponent and, and propagating all of this nonsense. Uh, so that should be a question in people's minds, you know, who, who, who you know, we, we see the academics and uh, their spheres of influence. We know that uh, we know that California legislators have been putting through a lot of these ideas in, in practice or trying to until they get shut down or resisted. But then we have this even, <laughs> you know, this even bigger global moneyed uh, influence. Um, so in any case, it's, uh, it's interesting to see how all of these, uh, all of these things work at, at different levels of society. And, um, and yeah, his point about making, making this understanding as, um, putting it into a uh, real life um, application as safely and as constructively uh, and as judiciously as possible is is kind of what we're what we need to do now to the extent that we can. All right. Uh, well, I don't think there's anything else to say after that. Ilan wrapped it all up for us, bringing it to the current events and how it all how it all applies uh, now today. So. Um, with that said, yeah, that was our discussion second on race Marxism. I still, I uh, still haven't read the last couple chapters, so we may or may not come back for a third, a third show on it. Um, we'll see, but books available on Amazon. We've got a link in the description. I'll also put a link to Arthur Versluce's new inquisitions. Um, cause there's, yeah, there's a lot more in there than. I got to today. So check it out. Thanks for tuning in. Um, make sure to subscribe if you like us. Subscribe if you don't like us too, just because why not? And uh, take care. We'll see you later.